0: Good morning. Um, For those of you uh, that haven't met, my name is David. Um, I'm one of the lay elders here at The Vine, so that means I have a day job. And, uh, you know, finish the joke yourself. Um, No, no, okay. Um, I'm stealing most of that introduction method from James Davenport. Um, And I just want to take a minute. You know, we're near the end of Zach, our lead pastor's sabbatical. Um, I want to give a shout out to James for what he's been doing, um, leading the staff, leading the elder team during Zach's outage. He's been awesome, doing a great job, super faithful in it. So when you see James, give him a thank you. I think he likes hugs from pretty much anyone, so you can go for the hug too. Um, James is definitely worthy of thanks and a hug um, for his service of our church. Well... um, I don't know if you all noticed this week, there's been, I'm using like NFL intro here today, so there's been a lot of um, uprising in the NFL. A certain head coach got fired this week due to any manner of impropriety, mistreating his team, um, generally doing things that all of us would say are pretty bad. And a while back, a different coach, a lot of emails filled with racism and all sorts of awful stuff came to light. And yes, we're using a tweet from the third-string quarterback of the Green Bay Packers to make the opening point here. It says, the problem in the NFL, so many of these types of guys control what happens in our career. Glad to be around the right kind of people. So here's the point with this. I think all of us have experienced, in some form, people in our lives in positions of power who are unjust. Maybe it's a manager in your workplace, um, someone in your life who holds authority, power, influence, and we've seen them be unjust with that, and we've seen and experienced how much that negatively impacts us. The NFL is perhaps a pretty um, low bar for that type of problem, and it's not the most important area of our lives, but I think we experience this much more broadly. And ultimately, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we are part of the problem too, that we often are unjust in how we react to people, that we are not charitable in our interactions, that we don't always see through the situation to what is true and act rightly. So we're going to Isaiah 11 today which I was kind of thinking about this this morning. I think it's about the only passage in the whole book of Isaiah that's not in Handel's Messiah, but we're doing it. So um, if you haven't been listening to Messiah on repeat, you should do that this afternoon. But in Isaiah 11, God promises us a king who's going to bring us equity and justice and peace. And this king, spoiler alert, if you haven't read all the way to the end of your Bible yet, it's Jesus, is the king we need. Because he alone can bring us into the kingdom of peace that we all desire. So let's pray, and we'll dive in. God, we need you. We know that we need you to work on our hearts by your Spirit. We need to be renewed. We need to be reminded um, of your goodness, of the beauty of Jesus. And so we pray that you do that this morning by your word. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to start by just diving right into some of the historical context around Isaiah. I had, actually had a lot of fun with it this week. If you want to kind of do a little bit of this of your own, you want to maybe find a chronological Bible listing online, or if you have a chronological Bible, you're looking at like 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles like 28, I think, and then like the start of Isaiah. And you put those side by side, and it's a wild ride, All right. So we are about nine generations after King David. And if you remember, King David, greatest king of all of Israel, united this huge area under his rule. Um, But after David's son Solomon, the kingdom split into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And we see this pattern of in the south, in particular in Judah, sometimes we'll have a good king, sometimes we'll have a bad king. Well right now we're with King Ahaz and 2 Kings 16 is pretty straightforward about this. Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Why do we say that? Well Ahaz finds out, this is like spy games here, he learns that Syria and Israel to the north are kind of like teaming up on Judah right now. They're going to team up and try to kind of get Judah under their thumb and he's super worried about this because two against one, not really a good matchup right? So Ahaz is kind of trying to figure out what to do about this. God sends Isaiah to Ahaz. And Isaiah's word from the Lord to Ahaz is this. He says, God's got this. You're, You're supposed to trust God here. God is going to provide, just like God delivered Israel out of Egypt, just like God brought you into the promised land, God's going to deliver you here. Ahaz doesn't listen. Ahaz instead decides to bring in Assyria, as a hired hand to take care of this. So he takes money out of the temple. This is going south real quickly here, right? Money out of the temple to pay the king of Assyria to come in and deal with this threat. Well, this is obviously not the right move. And God gives a word to Isaiah to share this rebuke more broadly. So Isaiah actually like goes into the town square And he gets a couple of witnesses and gets a tablet. And it's basically like an ancient notary to say, here's God's word that God has given to me. Yes, Assyria is going to deal with the north, but Assyria is going to become a big problem to you in the south. God is going to use Assyria to humble you. Now, not all the way. Assyria, he says, is not going to take Jerusalem, but it's going to come up to your neck, he says. And so this is exactly what happens. Assyria takes down Syria um, and Ahaz goes up to Damascus in Syria to see kind of what happened. So Ahaz rolls into Damascus, and he sees an altar there that he loves. And this is, right, this is going really far south. He likes this altar to a different god so much, he takes down the specifications, sends it back to a priest in Jerusalem, and has that priest make that altar so he can worship the god of the land that he just defeated through his Mecca nations Again, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This could be like a mini-series at this point. And what we see in 2 Chronicles 28, it says, The Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. Here's this fundamental problem. Ahaz is faithless. That means that in, in the light of the challenges that come to him, instead of trusting God's word, he tries to trust in himself and tries to trust in the power of the world. And what we're going to see is as the, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. We're going to see that God's people are essentially following Ahaz into this same way of living. Here's what Isaiah says to the people in Isaiah eight. It says, "For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, right? That conspiracy in the north between Israel and Syria, a lot of reason to be concerned about that. God says, don't worry about that. Don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And so the whole people are following in the way of their king here, fearing man instead of God, and it's leading them astray into idolatry, into false worship, into sin. So these troubles multiply, and a little bit earlier in Isaiah, we see a good summary of this in chapter 1, where Isaiah kind of explains how here it says, "'Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression.'" Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's no coincidence that this lack of justice among the people follows from the lack of justice and the unfaith of their king. And so Isaiah's prophecy ultimately proves true. Assyria would turn on Judah and advance all the way to the gates of Jerusalem, and Judah would be laid low by this. And it's in light of all of this that God promises to send a new king who will establish a very different kingdom. And all through Isaiah, we see these little pictures of what this king looks like. We see it here in chapter 11, a little bit earlier, when you think about the prophecies of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. And we're going to see this image of Isaiah, that Isaiah builds of what this king to come will look like. So let's jump into chapter 11 here. Where does this king come from? Isaiah 11, chapter 1 says, There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So there's some pretty strong imagery there of a tree, plants. And earlier in Isaiah, um, God talks about Assyria as an axe, his tool that's going to cut things down and bring things low. And so this really ties in there as you're going through Isaiah Judah and the line of David, the kings, are going to be brought low. It's going to seem like death. It's going to seem like it has failed. But there is a shoot, there's new life that comes out of this. Now, the stump of Jesse, Jesse is King David's father. And so this is tying into all of the promises that have been made to King David, that King David's throne would ultimately have a king who would reign forever. And one of the things that's really notable here is that these roots shall bear fruit. Now, that means it's showing true life. I've got um, a birch tree in my front yard, and it did not do well. Birch trees don't really bear fruit, so this one's going to break down pretty quickly, and I'm doing this on the fly. It just came to mind. Uh, The windstorm this week, I've got branches kind of all over the front of my yard, and it's not that this birch tree was terribly strong. It's rotted out on the inside. If that were a fruit tree, it is not going to bear fruit. It's not going to have healthy leaves. It's not going to have seeds. A tree that bears fruit is a tree that is healthy. It's a tree that is doing what a tree is meant to do. So this king, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, is going to do what a king is meant to do. Well, how? What is he like? We're going to see that in the next couple of verses here. In verse 2, it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's a lot of repetition um, to drive home that this king is spirit filled. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not revealed and fleshed out as much as we understand from the New Testament. But we see the spirit have a a key role in the kings of Israel. Uh, There's a really good picture of this in 1 Samuel 16, where we see uh, the priest Samuel had gone to David to anoint him to be the future king. And it says that as as David was anointed, that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And we transition back to Saul, uh, who God had said he would remove from the kingship, and it said that the spirit departed from Paul. And so I think what we can draw from this here is that the spirit is upon the king so that the king can fulfill his kingly purpose, right? The spirit empowers God's people to carry out the purpose he has for them. So you think about King David. David, you know, rolls into the Israelite camp up against the Philistines and there's Goliath. Goliath is someone you could definitely be afraid of being a giant, But David doesn't fear Goliath because the spirit is in him. He trusts God rather than the might of man when he faces Goliath. I think also later, if you remember the story where Saul is chasing David, wanting to kill him, and David realizes he has a chance that he could do Saul in. But David knows that that's not what God wants. And so rather than seeking vengeance in the moment, David uh, does not strike Saul. You see how the spirit in the life of the king can empower and does empower to do what is right and to do what is good. So what is the spirit empowering this king that Isaiah is speaking of? Well, wisdom and understanding. So this is a king who will be able to judge well, counsel and might. He's going to be able to carry out his plans and a knowledge and fear of the Lord. This is going to be repeated in the next verse here, but this is, this is ultimately holiness. And we see that here in verse 3, right in this top line. The king's delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. I was talking through this sermon yesterday with uh, my family a little bit, and Matthias, uh, when I was talking about this, immediately said, hey, that reminds me of Psalm 1. I said, buddy, yeah, it's right here in the notes. So... Um, that, that was a win there. And he's right. He's right. This reminds me of Psalm 1. I'm going a little out of order on the slides here. Sorry, Alex. We're going to jump ahead a couple. But Psalm 1 reminds us of what it looks like when someone is deeply rooted and trusts in God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. It's a rootedness. When we trust in God and fear him rather than the world, rather than man, when we trust what God says, when we delight in who our God is, it's liberating. It frees us. We don't have to be afraid of the things of this world anymore. We can trust God even in adversity. And that's what this king is going to model and show and do more than any other. He is going to be the righteous one whose delight is in the fear of the Lord. The king is empowered by God's spirit to complete his task and to trust fully in God. This is looking completely different than Ahaz at this point, right? Ahaz has a little bit of conflict on the northern border and immediately runs to foreign kings and foreign gods rather than trusting in what God says. Okay, so we've got a king who's trusting in God, who is holy, who is just. What does he do? We see that here in the next few verses, that he's a judge. He's going to judge the poor, and he's going to judge the wicked. I think it's key here, it says, he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. I think if we're honest, we know that in this world, we don't always see justice carried out fairly. We see that a lot of times people in positions of power with enough money for lawyers can kind of get off the hook without really too much of a problem, and those with less power and influence often uh, bear the heavier consequences. Not always, but we, we see these cases where justice is not carried out. And we see even in our lives how challenging it can be to discern someone. Why are they doing what they're doing? What are their motivations? Is what they're doing right? This can all be very challenging to discern, And what we see here is that Jesus, this king who's prophesied, is a perfectly righteous judge. And so because he is righteous, he can bring perfect justice. Jesus sees through all of the trappings of this world. We see this ultimately echoed in the book of Revelation. There where um, we see this scene where there's this scroll, and everyone wants to, this scroll to be opened because it's going to reveal uh, God's plan for the world. And they say no one can open it until Jesus comes along. And they say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. See, this lamb, Jesus, who is holy, is the one who is worthy to un, to open up the scroll, to show God's plan, and to rightly judge. As we continue in this Chapter here, though, we see that he is not just going to say what is right and wrong, he's actually going to carry out justice. Right? It says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Does that make you a little uncomfortable? Makes me uncomfortable sometimes. But we see throughout Scripture that God's deliverance of his people is always wrapped up in the judgment of evil, they have to come together. I think we know this instinctively as well, that the oppressed don't experience peace unless their oppressors have been dealt with. So we see this in the book of Genesis with the flood, right? Noah's family is delivered, but the world around them is judged. In the Exodus, we see Israel brought out of slavery in Egypt, but Egypt is judged, And ultimately, we're going to see this at the cross. The cross where Jesus takes the punishment and the justice of God on himself. This is the good news for us as we consider Jesus as a perfect judge. When We remember that we too are unjust, that we too are sinners. Because all sin, all evil will be punished. But Jesus offers to take that punishment on himself. And that's where King Jesus begins his kingdom. Not pushing evil under the rug, not saying sin doesn't matter, but recognizing that it has a cost and taking that cost on himself. And so Jesus, this king, is going to establish justice and establish his kingdom, right? It's this king from the line of David. He's spirit-filled. He fully trusts God. He's going to judge the earth and bring justice. And that's when his kingdom is established. And what does his kingdom look like then? And we see this here in verse 9. Um, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. So we're going to jump back to the, um, to the Animal stuff in a second. That was a strange way to put it, but um, this four in here is really key, right? We see that they—they they meaning like these um, predatory animals will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. So um, waters cover the whole sea. Just <laughs> to kind of flesh out that metaphor a little bit. And this is to say that in Jesus' kingdom that is to come, everyone will know the Lord. Everyone will fully trust in the Lord. See, Jesus is establishing a kingdom where we too can have hearts that fully rely on our God, that treasure him, and that delight in him. And what that produces is a kingdom where there's no harm, where there's no hurt where there is peace. Isaiah uses some imagery of animals in the previous verses to introduce this. We see a wolf dwelling with the lamb. That's usually a problem, right? A leopard lying down with a young goat. And these are just pictures of how these relationships of hurt and conflict and harm will be resolved, where the wolf will lie peacefully with the lamb. In Israel's context, they could very easily think of the nations around them as predatory animals out to harm them. And you can imagine the comfort to be told that those nations will no longer cause them harm. Now isn't this the world we want? This is a world where justice is administered and where evil has been dealt with in a world where conflict has given way to peace. I think those of us who know Jesus have experienced this peace uh, with God and with others. We've gotten a taste of that. But some of you maybe don't know this peace, and I want to say there's good news for you. You see, we see in chapter uh, 11, verse 10 here, in, in the next verse, that this king comes from a specific family, but that this king is for the whole world. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This king from this very specific family in this small nation in the Middle East is a king who is for the whole world. So he's for every one of us here, anyone who would trust in him we see this good news proclaimed in the birth story of Jesus. This is a a text you may be familiar with, uh, the angels proclaiming Jesus' birth. They say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus' kingdom coming into the world is peace for all who would accept him. So if, if you don't know Jesus, we'd love to talk to you more about who he is. We'd love to tell you more about his kingdom and about his forgiveness. And so come talk to someone, grab someone next to you after the service, and we'd love to talk about him more with you. Those of us who know Jesus and his peace, we're invited to be ambassadors of this kingdom now. The Spirit is given to us, just as the Spirit is upon the kings of Israel so they could fulfill our purpose. The Spirit is given to Christians so we can fulfill our purpose as ambassadors of Jesus in the world. Let's look at Galatians 5. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Man, aren't those good things? Don't you want to be filled with those things? We're told that the spirit is given to us and the spirit empowers us to these things. So these are ours as we trust in God, as we fear him and as we delight in him. I think there's a few ways this plays out just thinking about what, how Jesus is described in this passage, right? We saw Jesus judging rightly, seeing through the trappings. I think about the book of James, James 2, where it says, don't show favoritism, don't show preference just to those who can do things for you, but honor everyone. That's a way that we can um, look like Jesus in our interactions. James also says, be slow to speak. I just think, man, if I were a little bit slower to just listen and understand before I speak, before I judge, I would look more like Jesus in that. Maybe some of you are managers in the workplace. And maybe this week you would just slow down and ask God to give you wisdom um, in how you interact with your employees, to judge rightly, to honor them, to do what is good. Or here's one for the holidays: pursue peace in your relationships. What's a step that you could take, trusting in the Spirit, trusting that God is at work in you, fearing God instead of man, to take a step forward in peace, in a relationship where you've known conflict? Jesus has established his kingdom. He's brought us into it. He's given us his Spirit to empower us. And so we're free to pursue peace in our relationships. And finally, I want to remind us that we have a future hope that this kingdom is an already, but not yet. It's been established, but it's not fully realized. If we look ahead to Revelation chapter 22, this is right at the end of the Bible. and it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. See, Jesus, very end of the Bible talking about how things will ultimately be made new, Jesus still identifies as the root of David, as the offspring of Jesse. He's the king of peace who is establishing his kingdom. We're in the time of Advent right now as we anticipate Christmas, and Advent means arrival or coming, and we anticipate and wait for celebrating Jesus coming as a child in this world but it's also good in this time to look forward to Jesus' second arrival, to Jesus' second coming. And that's the hope that we wait for, when Jesus' kingdom is fully established, when we'll experience his peace. And we have good hope. Uh, you know, in this, this last couple of years, I, think, I, I was um, reading an article on the Gospel Coalition a couple weeks ago, and it was talking about how the world is so crazy and so forth. And I looked at the date on it, and it was 2015. just thought, oh, let me get you in a time machine right now, right? Like, we all kind of look back, we're like, oh, yes, in the, in the innocent times, right? But if we're honest with ourselves, this is just the tension of this age, right? That there's brokenness, and there's hurt, and there's harm, and it's going to come and go, and it's going to ebb and flow. And we just long for Jesus to make things new and bring his kingdom. And Jesus... At the end of Revelation, he says, surely I am coming soon. And uh, I think John echoes there, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer, and let's, let's pray. God, we praise you that Jesus is our king of peace, that he's a good king, that he is just, that he's beautiful. And we pray you'd set our eyes on him, that we would trust him and treasure him, We long for your kingdom. We long for your peace. We pray as we um, celebrate Christmas this coming week that we would have joy in our hearts knowing that Jesus has come into the world. And God, would you make us ambassadors that Jesus would be known and treasured among all nations. We pray in his name, amen.